sweet time of worship. Let me take, take a moment and ask you to turn to your Bibles in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and we'll be reading shortly in verse 25. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. The title of this evening's message is Mercy in the Streets. Mercy in the Streets. That's where we need it the most. And I've been blessed today. It's just been a blessing. And um, it is a privilege to serve here as your pastor, but it is a privilege to serve with the pastors that God has placed among us at Wynn Baptist Church. And I'm thankful for each of them and the contribution they make. And Dustin, we're so grateful for you and the word that you shared with us today. It's good, good, good. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly, do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Mercy. There's so many examples, I think, to support this. I'm going to pull three that I think illustrate the fact that you and I live in a time and place in our culture, in our nation, where there is a famine of mercy. And I could point out all kinds of things. I, I could talk about how it seems almost impossible for us to carry on a civil discussion when two people disagree. We have illustrated for us on the media a total, complete lack of civility when people talk to each other in the midst of their differences. 
That's an absence of mercy. There are other examples I could give. We could talk about a lot of them, but I want to just point out three. Litigation. In the last 80 years in this country, the, the cost of litigation, people suing other people, people suing corporations, has increased four times faster than the rest of the economy. Estate litigation. People arguing over what dad and mom and grandma and granddad are handing down to the children. Estate litigation is still being called one of the growth industries within the law profession as families are ripped apart contesting wills. It's an absence of mercy. Road rage. People are dying over road rage on the highways. 56% of men experience some form of road rage daily. 44% of women. I'm so glad I don't commute to Little Rock anymore. Because I could just say every other car, somebody's mad. Sometimes it was my car. <laughs> and let me point out a third one. This may come a little closer to home. Ranting. I don't have statistics on this, but it seems like way too much of our social media, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or a combination of the three, I think it's going to be called you twit face. <laughs> so much social media is devoted to someone ranting about someone else. And it is an absence of mercy. And you and I need to be so careful what we're reflecting, not just in our words, but in our attitude towards other people. We're in the middle of a mercy famine. In this passage of Scripture, the Lord Jesus teaches us about the kind of mercy you and I are to show to others. It is a product or an outgrowth of our salvation, of our personally knowing Jesus Christ. It's missing from our world because it's missing from our personal experience. And so how can you and I change that? Well, when Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan, he identifies, first of all, five roadblocks to mercy. These are the things that can keep you and I from being merciful to others. The first of all, there are people who just talk about misery. They just talk about misery. They're not really engaged in alleviating it. They don't do anything about it. And the lawyer represents this. In verse 25, he says, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and, uh, and Jesus listens to him, quote, the different, the, the ultimate of the summation of the law, that you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbors yourself. And the man says, I've done this. And Jesus says, do this and you'll live. But then the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And he suddenly becomes philosophical in talking to Jesus. He, he, he has heard from the Lord Jesus what you need to do in terms of loving God, loving your neighbor, but now he wants to discuss it. He wants to debate the finer points of it. He wants to 
understand it to the nth degree. He wants to talk about it as an idea, but not necessarily make it part of his life. And you and I can do this, and we can encounter people who are doing this when we start asking questions. Now, they're not necessarily bad questions, but they become excuses for doing what is merciful. For example, why would a loving God who is almighty allow so much pain and suffering in the world? Now, that's not a bad question. It is the theological question of the ages. But sometimes we ask that question not because we're more compassionate to to those who are suffering, but because we have a problem with God or the person we're talking to is wrestling with him. Or we may talk about the government. Why do you think the government, what they should be doing, what should they be doing about poverty or crime or literacy or education or health care? Not because we really want to do something about it, but we want to talk about the problem. It's a roadblock to mercy. Secondly, people who cause misery. That's a roadblock to mercy, I would say. These are the thieves that are described in verse 30. This man was traveling, it says, from Jerusalem, which is at about 2,500 feet above sea level, down to Jericho, which is 800 feet below sea level. And so he's making a journey downhill. And that was a dangerous journey in that day and time. There was believed to be a murderous thief behind every rock. It was not a journey you wanted to make by yourself. And so this man was a victim of these thieves. And just as they added to that man's misery, if you and I aren't careful, we add to the misery of others. And that's what these guys did. They caused misery. I may have mentioned this before. It's just too good a story. Laura's not here tonight. My daughter's gone to go to work tonight at the hospital. But when she was a little girl, we were stuck in traffic going over a bridge over the Kakashu River outside Lake Charles, Louisiana. We're going over the bridge. Traffic's backed up. It's narrowed down to one lane, and we're moving over. We don't know why. It's hot. It's summertime, and the windows are rolled down. And we had just been to go swimming at a friend's house. And Laura, I don't know how old she was. Oh, she's probably um, nine, maybe, I'm guessing, or ten. And we're coming up to the top of the bridge. There's a police cruiser, a couple of them. A man is straddling the rail at the top of the bridge, which is several stories over the water. And they're, they're surrounding him at a distance, trying to talk him off the rail, obviously. And right as we go by, just like a little kid would do, she hollers outside. She kind of laughs. She goes, ha, 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 what's he going to do? Jump! <laughs> and of course, we said, la, la! <laughs> And if you and I aren't careful, we can be like that when people are hurting around us. There's a third roadblock to mercy, people who avoid misery. People who avoid misery. This is the priest described in verse 31. It says, now by chance a certain priest came down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now I'm sure he had good reasons. He probably had to go speak somewhere. He had some duty to perform at the temple, some religious activity, some service of God, and he couldn't afford to be late. And again, if you and I aren't careful, busyness, and I speak to myself even at this moment, busyness can be the very thing that keeps us from engaging in the misery and hurt of others. 
people who avoid misery. There's a fourth roadblock to mercy, people who are fascinated by misery. Fascinated by misery. This is the Levite in verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked. Do you see that? Came and looked and passed by on the other side. You know what we call that, don't you? Rubbernecking. There's a guy in the ditch. He's been beat up. It's gruesome. It's awful. He went over and looked. He didn't avoid it, but he was fascinated by it, and he kept going. You know the tornadoes that hit last weekend in Mayflower, Arkansas, in Valonia. Mayflower sits right on I-40. And they had to set a minimum speed limit within a day or so after the storm to keep people moving fast enough through there because they were slowing down to see the damage from the storm. There are people who are fascinated by misery. Our whole culture turns misery into a sideshow with reality television. Number five, roadblocks to mercy. Here's a fifth one. People who profit from misery. People who profit from misery. This is the innkeeper. Described in verse 35, he's the one that was paid two denarii to take care of the man while the Samaritan went away. And he's making money off this deal. And there are those of us who meet needs as part of our profession. Whether, whatever your business is, but you meet needs as part of your profession. And you and I need to be careful that we don't lose our sense of mission and our effort to turn a profit. In the early 1990s, the federal government passed a law called the Emergency Treatment and Active Labor Act, MTLA. And this, this particular act was designed to curb and prevent the practice of patient dumping by hospitals when they recognized that a patient could not pay for their care. Sometimes they were transferred to places. In the years following the passage of that law, the first five years, there were hundreds of hospitals that were fined, violating this law that prevented patient dumping. I remember one of the ones in 1998 that was, that was accused of doing this and was fined was a hospital called Good Samaritan Hospital in Boston. The irony. More recently, over the last five years, from 2008 to 2013, Nevada's primary state psychiatric hospital called the Rawson Neal Psychiatric Hospital in Las Vegas transported more than 1,500 patients by Greyhound bus around the country and dropped them off with no care, no place, no one waiting for them. They just put them on buses and sent them across the country. Fourteen went to Little Rock, two to Fayetteville, three to Fort Smith, one to Hot Springs, seven to Memphis. That may explain a lot. They just put them on buses. And so we have to be careful that when we are in a profession where we meet needs, that we balance the need for mercy with the need to keep the business profitable and running. Which brings me to this question, very practically. How can I put mercy in the streets? we got to get it off the pages of God's Word. We have to move it from being a topic of conversation 
to where mercy becomes something that we do out there. Let me define mercy. Mercy defined in Scripture. This word means an emotional response to human misery that moves someone to act. There is emotion involved, and it moves us to act. Now, in the Hebrew mind, the seat of the emotions were the small intestines. And this word for compassion that's used in our text refers to the small intestines. Now, it's a Greek word, and the Greeks never thought of the small intestines as the seat of the emotions. They, they, they just referred to the inward parts. The word compassion just referred to it. But in the Hebrew mind, it referred to emotion. Bowels of mercy. I love you with all my heart would be a little different for someone with a Hebrew mindset. And so they're describing here when it says that this man had mercy or he had compassion, it's talking about a visceral, gut-level response to someone who is in misery, someone who is in need. The Bible says that the Levite and the priest in our story did not have this. They didn't feel this. It wasn't inside them. It is used to describe the Samaritan in verse 33. He had compassion. And so as we think about the movement of this story that Luke gives to us, the man says, what shall I do? And Jesus says, what does the law say? And he quotes, you should love the Lord your God, you should love your neighbor. Then he says, who is my neighbor? And at the end of the story, Jesus says, Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And see, Jesus has changed it. The man saying, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, who is the neighbor? And it turns out to be the one who shows mercy. He says, go and do likewise. And it's present tense. It means constantly be a man, be a woman who does mercy. How do we do that? Number one, live life out of the overflowing mercy of God. Live life out of the overflowing mercy of God. In verse 33, it says, A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And he reacted differently than the others. He saw this man And he didn't just see him. He walked over to where he was. And when he saw him, he reacted. And he was different. Now why? Because he had more time on his hands? Don't think so. Obviously he was a busy man. Obviously he was a man of means. He had money to pay for this guy's care at the innkeepers. And so he was probably a a man of business. And he had a place to go. That's why he was on that road. And he, he was a busy guy. So it's not because he had more time. But he had a reservoir of mercy on the inside. He had something that we desperately need if we're going to show mercy to others. Now, why did he have that? It goes back to your relationship to God. Here's the first thing I want you to see. God 
gives me mercy before He gives me anything else. And as you, if you understand this, if you read the text of Scripture, it will cause it to come alive for you. This is the first thing that God gives to you. He's a God of grace. But what does He give you first? What is the gift? It's mercy. And if this description of mercy that's applied to the Samaritan can be applied to God, that means that God looks through the ages and He sees you and He sees me and He is moved. He feels something. And it's the foundation for His activity. In Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to or because of His mercy, He saved us. John 3.16 says the same thing. For God so loved the world that He gave. But what came first? <laughs> His love for you. And so God gives us mercy. It's not based on our merit. You look at that description of what we were like. It's not based on any works of righteousness that we have done. It's not based on anything being commendable in us, in our words or our actions or our thoughts. It is something that is simply already in the heart of God. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. The Samaritan was a man who had experienced the mercy of God. And because he had encountered God's mercy, he became a merciful guy. And so that brings me to this statement. You cannot give what you do not possess. You can't give mercy if you've never experienced mercy. And every day, God wants to load you up with his mercy. One of my favorite passages on this and this is why we can pass it on the others. And it requires time alone with God. You and I have got to come to a place where convictionally I understand this about God. Lamentations 3.22. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. And that word means finished off. Every breath you take at this moment, is because of the mercies of God. Because you and I have sinned. Because we have rejected Him and His rule. We have not received Him. At some point in our life, we deserve something, but it wasn't mercy. And because of His mercy, you and I are breathing you and I can talk. You and I can have a conversation. Because of His mercy, we can have families. We can have friends. 
We can know the love of others and experience something of the goodness of God in this world on this side of heaven. And so it's only because of his mercies we're not finished off. Why? Why is it that because of his mercies we're not finished off? Because his compassions fail not. They don't end. They're never finished off. It's a play on words in the original language. We're not finished off because you can't exhaust the mercy of God. You can't come to a place where he says, well, that's all you get. I'm through with you. No more mercy for you. They are new every morning. That's an astounding statement. Great is your faithfulness. What does that mean? It means all the mercy that God showered on me today, when I get up tomorrow morning, he starts all over again. The infinite, wonderful, boundless mercy of God is all there again for me to enjoy tomorrow. Every day is truly a new day. So that's what God is thinking in relationship to you and me. And that man here tonight, that woman here tonight, who experiences and understands the mercy of God, you can be then a reservoir of mercy for others. Number two. Hear the cries for mercy around you. That's what happened. This man was walking along, and it says, and when he saw him, that's all it took. Now, that man was so beat up. He was in so much trouble. He couldn't speak. But there was still a cry just in the image of that man. And the Samaritan responded. You know, at least ten times in the Gospels, the Bible tells us that people cried out to Jesus. And each time he stopped. Each time. For example, in Matthew 20, verse 31, there were two blind men who cried out when they were told to be quiet by the disciples. They cried out all the more saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Ten times. And around you, every day, there are people crying for mercy. Someone offends you. They're crying for mercy. Someone messes up, hurts your feelings. It's a cry for mercy. Someone endangers your life on the road. They cut you off. It's a cry for mercy. There are people around you who are lonely, who don't have friends, who don't have family. It's a cry for mercy. There are people who are in despair tonight, maybe sitting here among us, and they're sad beyond description, and they're hurting. It's a cry for mercy from you and for me. There are people who are in trouble tonight. There are people who are distressed tonight. It is a cry for mercy. You and I need to hear the cries for mercy all around us. Number three, to put mercy in the streets, let compassion drive your actions. He came to where the man was. He saw him, and it says he had compassion. Everything that happened after that started with the mercy that he felt for this guy. Everything flowed from there. 
It says he was moved with compassion for them. In Matthew 9, 36, the Lord Jesus was operated the same way. He sees the crowds. He sees the multitudes. He feels something viscerally. He's moved with compassion, and he begins to act. His plans change. The retreat that he had in mind, he's not retreating now. He steps into the fray, and he begins to minister relief to hurting people. Jesus, when he used this word compassion, which is an emotional response to human misery, he applies it to God. For example, in Matthew 18, 27, you remember the story of the man that owed a great debt to a king, to a master. And it says in Matthew 18, 27, that when the servant pleaded for mercy, it says the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Moved with compassion. Who's he describing? He's talking about God. And when you and I call on him, when we come to him, he is moved with compassion. In Luke 15, 20, in the story of the prodigal son, the son is left. He's run and run and run as far away from the father as he could go. He took all of the gifts of the father. He exploited them. He said, Father, you're no good to me. You're as good as dead. He wakes up in a pig pen. He comes to his senses, and he's coming home. And the father sees him from afar, which means he was waiting for the son, watching every day for the son to come home. And it says in Luke 15, 20, his father saw him and had compassion and ran. So how are you and I to respond to misery? Let me give you a cute saying. I call it cute, but it helps. Care until you cry, or cry until you care. We're all different. We're wired a little differently. Our emotions and our heads are all wired a little differently. We have different experiences. But when you and I experience the mercy of God, he's going to rewire our brains and our hearts. Care until you cry or cry until you care. What mercy does is it enters into the experience of misery. Mercy enters into the experience of the person who's hurting, whatever it is. The father sees the son, he runs. The master sees the servant who owes his debt. He enters into it, it cancels the debt. And so you and I are called to do the same. In our world, I'm afraid that we easily become desensitized to the pain of others. We're bombarded with images of hurting people. We're entertained by people who are hurting as a culture. And, and we're fascinated by it. And so you and I have to become desensitized. We have to undo that. We have to remove that immunity so that we can feel again. There are two thoughts that may help you change when you see someone who's hurting. One thought may go this way. This is the way I was. Those of us who have experienced pain, when you've experienced hurt, when you've experienced misery, and you see someone who's experiencing that pain, You can just remember, I've been there. I know what that's like. Another thought is this could have been me. 
Maybe you've never experienced anything like someone is experiencing, but as you see what's happening to them, you say, you know, that could be me. That could be me that got that diagnosis. That could be my child. That could be my situation. That could be my job that was lost. The priest, in verse 31, it says, by chance, a certain priest came down the hill. He's the one that just kept on going. By chance, a certain priest came down. I think it's very interesting that Jesus chose those words. By chance, a priest came. Why? Because it could have been the priest that got beat up. If he had left a little sooner that morning, so he hadn't been in a rush, he could have been lying in that ditch. And sometimes that's what you and I, what we need to enter into the misery of others. Just think, that could have been me. That could have been me. So live life out of the overflowing mercy of God. Every day, his mercies recharge all over again. Hear the cries for mercy around you. Let compassion drive your actions. And then finally, number four, flood the streets with mercy. Go all the way. Flood the streets with mercy. Go all the way. I like this. It says, so he went to him in verse 34, and he took care of him. Whatever it took, he sought to make it happen. Whatever it took. He found a place for him. He put him on his transportation. He walked the rest of the way. He got him to where he needed to be. He paid for what he needed to have done. He went all the way. Judgment Day. Judgment Day will be all about mercy. Either the mercy of God being shown to you and I, and that mercy transformed you and I at some point in the past so that we became merciful like our Father is merciful. Or there's a vacuum, and we were not changed by mercy. And so our Father, because we rejected Him, is unable to show us mercy. Judgment Day is all about mercy. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, when Jesus speaks to those who are the sheep, he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. What did they do? They showed mercy. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Am I going to be a merciful person? I can't work that up. Neither can you. It begins as you and I encounter the mercy of God. Have you known God's mercy in your life? Have you come to a place where you understood that it's not by works of righteousness? It's not anything that you can do to make yourself good enough for God. So many people are deceived into thinking that if I just live a basically good life and I don't hurt anybody, I'm going to go to heaven. It has nothing to do with your performance. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ accomplished for you already on the cross. He died for your sins. He paid the price your sins deserved. And God raised him from the dead. And so what does he say? 
He says, you come to me. Whosoever will may come. He says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When you and I call on him, put our trust in him, with empty hands, nothing to offer, no goodness in my soul, nothing except a heart cry for him. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then you and I know based on God's word that when I trust him like that, when I call on him like that, he gives us mercy. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ like that, with empty hands and an open heart, just come to him and say, Lord, I turn, I turn from my life without you. I turn from trying to make myself good enough. I turn from trying to do life and try to be a good person. I turn from all of that. I just turn to you. The rest of my life, Lord, I just want you to lead me, guide me, fill me, change me. Save me, Lord. Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. As we close our time tonight, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to his offer of mercy. So if you want to trust Christ tonight, there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. They'll be happy to pray with you. You can read in God's Word how a person becomes a Christian, how they can be saved, and how you can experience the mercy of God. And so when we stand and sing, I invite you to come and talk to one of these pastors. And then, brothers and sisters, maybe you realize tonight you have not been merciful. Maybe there's someone you're going to need to go and talk to tonight. You just need to set your heart during this decision time and say, Lord, I heard what you said to me, and I'm going to go ask that person to forgive me. Or maybe there's someone that needs you to minister to them, and God is bringing them to mind right now. And you just need to bow your head when we stand and sing to say, Lord, I'm going to do it. Lord, fill me up with mercy, and let me go and do mercy like you would do mercy to that person. As God speaks to you, how will you respond? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you teach us through it. Father, help us first to know the mercy that is new every day. And every day, may we be the kind of man or woman that gets up and says, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your overwhelming and overflowing mercy. Father, as we respond to you in these moments, Holy Spirit, would you come and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.